Hey guys, welcome back to the Chalkline Talk podcast. I'm your co-host, Bo Wills, along with my other co-host, Kenny Malloy. Um, we, we have an awesome show today. Um, we inter- great guests, fantastic guests. Nick Shepkowski of 670 The Score came on, uh, fellow Kohler, Nick Shepkowski. And we also interviewed Josh Nelson of the Sox Machine podcast. Um, I mean, we couldn't stop talking to Josh. It, it was 45 minutes of just like heart-to-heart chatter. It was awesome. Um, what a great guy and uh, fantastic interview with him. We talked about so many random things, including baseball, but so many random things that, uh, yeah, it was, it was awesome. We also do our start bench cut for the week, along with our most underrated player of the week. And we're going to start today off, after the intro rolls, uh, we're going to start today off with our review of Long Gone Summer, the documentary by, uh, or about McGuire and Sosa, uh, which we had talked about on Sunday. But yeah, fantastic show today. We're very excited uh, about our interviews with Josh Nelson and Nick Shepkowski. And uh, Kenny, what do you got? Oh, yo, the interview with Josh was awesome. I'm ready for you guys to listen to that here in a couple minutes. And uh, what do you say for all the intro? I say we roll that intro. All right, guys. Well, to borrow a phrase from a man I uh, deeply admire, uh, I'd like to pull up a chair. That was a message from our sponsors at Anchor. Um, But we're going to talk with our first segment here about the documentary that we all saw on uh, Sunday night, which was Long Gone Summer. 
detailed the home run chase of 1998 between Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, but pretty much just detailed the home run chase of Mark McGuire. And there wasn't really much talk of Sammy Sosa. Um, Kenny, what, I mean, what did you think about it? Um, I thought uh, Sosa was literally an afterthought of that whole documentary. I mean, you know, they checked in with Sosa a couple times and, um, you know, they, they did follow him a little bit, but that whole damn thing, they should have just named it Mark McGuire um, because that was majority about him. Yeah, uh, it seemed like it was the Mark McGuire documentary, like, with special guest Tammy Sosa. Sosa. Exactly. Like, he was a a feature on the track. You know, that's pretty much what that was. Um, I I could pretty much figure this was how the documentary was going to go, that it was going to talk very little about the actual steroid use, and it was going to focus on the nostalgia that, that summer provided and what it did for the game of baseball. I pretty much figured that's exactly what was going to happen. And I was pretty much spot on with that. Yeah. The other thing that, you know, I found kind of interesting about that whole thing was how little they made the deal steroids seem at that point. Um, You know, they talked about um, how the reporter saw the bottle of, I can't remember the name of it, but how the reporter saw the bottle and they kind of, you know, talked about it a little bit and then it was just kind of like an afterthought. Yeah. I mean, like it, it just completely disregarded that steroids like were bad. It just, the whole documentary just talked about how good this was for baseball, which again, it didn't end up being a positive thing for baseball because it, it brought fans back and, you know, it was something to, to watch and people were intrigued by it. But Oh man, they, 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 I mean, steroids are bad. No, they aren't. Hell, I wouldn't take steroids. That makes my pee-pee smaller. But like, they don't, t- they didn't talk about that. No, they didn't tell you all the negative effects about freaking steroids. So, I don't know so what kind like, of- a, like the freaking, what's that big pink creature from like Mario? Jigglypuff. He looks like Jigglybuff. I don't. Jigglypuff. I don't know what kind of man would knowingly take steroids, knowing what happens to the rest of their body after that. I mean, yeah, sure, you look ripped, you you hit home runs, but what's going to happen to you after you're done playing the game? Yeah, I don't. I thought that was a big – and, again, yes, it was good for baseball because it brought fans back. It was phenomenal. The whole point – the whole reason why it's so so famous now – yeah, it was like it happened and it was exciting, but like it's like inauthentic the way Bob Costas kept saying it. It's inauthentic, and they yeah. really did. They really didn't address that. You know, Bo, I'm gonna ask you the question that they. I can't remember who they were interviewing at the end um, of that, but do you think McGuire gets to 62 home runs without juicing? No, I don't think either of them get to 60 home. Maybe one of them hits 60 home runs. Here's okay. Here's one thing. Yes, steroids don't make you, like, have a better swing. They don't give you a better swing path. They don't let you have a better idea of the strike zone. They just make you stronger. So, yeah, you still have to have a really good bat path, and, you know, you still have to square up the ball. But they didn't have to hit the ball as hard for it to go out because they were stronger, and they were cheating. Yeah. 
So uh, maybe, 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 maybe he gets to 62. I don't know. But I think that's a long shot if he's not juicing. But you know what? I, at least the thing about McGuire is that at least he admitted he did it, which Sosa still hasn't done. Again, I think it's, I think it's pretty like horseshit that Sosa still isn't allowed back to Wrigley considering that he put the Cubs on the map. I think he should be allowed back. But he still mm-hmm. he never admitted to anything. Like, we, they all know he did it. I don't understand why you don't just admit it. No, I cannot agree with you anymore. I mean, at this point, you know, Sammy Sosa was the Cubs um, for however many – I mean, what? He was the face of the franchise the whole time he was there pretty much. And I know there was some drama that unfolded, um, you know, especially at the end of the documentary. They said that he left the, the field early um, before the game ended. Um, but we don't know if he was told to leave early by Dusty or – you know what truly happened there. Yeah, which is what which is what Shep said. You guys will hear that in a little bit. But uh, yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I I don't think the documentary did a good enough job of showing the entire story. I think it was solely focused on the nostalgia part. Which yeah, I get that. But mm, I I think the whole story needed to be told there, and we no like. The whole reason why The Last Dance was so good is because it felt like we learned something new every episode. We didn't learn anything. Yes. We didn't learn. There's nothing to be learned. They didn't teach us anything. You know, they could have taken completely different ways for this documentary. Um, You know, I would have liked for them to, you know, the kids watching this that, you know, hear about steroids. Because, I mean, steroids is still part of the game today. We have guys get busted every year for steroids but i wish they would have talked a little bit more about the negative effects of steroids and what really does happen to you when you take them because if you're if you're a kid watching the documentary and like hey i want to play division one baseball i want to go play pro baseball that documentary doesn't say steroids are bad for your body at all it just showed what happens when you do which is really good things Yeah, I agree with you. But yeah, that that's our review of the documentary Long Gone Summer. Um, if you guys have some similar thoughts, if you think maybe uh, we're completely wrong, uh, DM us or message us and uh, tell us what you think. But that's what we think about it. Um, with that said, we're going to continue that conversation about Long Gone Summer with our next guest, and maybe a few more things we'll talk about with Shepkowski. Um, but yeah, here's our next guest, Nick Shepkowski. Hey, Shep, how's it going? Good, how about yourself? We are all right. Uh, thanks for coming on, appreciate it. Oh, no worries whatsoever. Um, but before we get to your interview, we'd like to introduce you to our listeners. I'm guessing a lot of them, uh, if they know me, they definitely know you. But uh, today we have on Nick Shepkowski. He works for 670 The Score. He's the executive producer of the McNeil and Parkins show. And uh, most importantly, he's a Cole City Kohler. Yeah, you got that part right. That's, uh, that's, that's the most important part of uh, Shep's bio is that he's a Cole City High School graduate and former sophomore football player under legendary Greg Wills. 
That's right. A team that went 9-0 and with the most epic freshman-sophomore game of all time in Week 9 against Wilmington, a 14-10 to Cold City victory. Oh, he still talks about that one to this day. So, uh, <laughs> but, but, hey, great to have you on, Shep. Uh, got some things we want to talk to you about today. Uh, I guess we want to kind of start off with uh, what we were able to see last night with the long gone summer. I know you were watching. Uh, you had put out some stuff on Twitter about it. Um, I was barely, you know, barely alive when that was going on. I was like three years old. Um, but you were kind of, you were younger, but you, you were able to kind of understand what was going on during that time. And being a Cubs fan, you've kind of seen the longer lasting effects of what the home run chase and what Sosa did, um, you know, what that has on the Cubs today. So, I mean, you want to talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, it's just, I thought the documentary was, it was nice, like trip down memory lane of, we went into that year with kind of knowing, not knowing McGuire, you can't know if someone's going to hit 62 home runs, but you knew that he had a great chance to, he had just been traded at the deadline the year before from Oakland. Uh, to St. Louis and went on a tear with St. Louis that uh, half of a season that he played there. And the hype was all around McGuire and really Griffey. And Griffey had, is that the most like, quietest 56 home run season that anyone's ever had of, all right, yeah, outstanding season. Then you look up the MVP voting and Griffey finishes fourth in the American League that year, despite hitting 56 homers, 120 ribbies. And hitting, I don't know, his average was a little bit down that year, but his power certainly was there. Um, but it just was a it was a crazy summer in that June came around and Sosa was hitting a home run seemingly every day. He explodes, hits 20 in the month. He catches McGuire, I think, by some point in July. And then the back half of that summer is just those two dueling back and forth. And I was only 12 years old, but couldn't get enough of it. It was it was like the importance was the Cubs are obviously in a playoff chase that year. They end up going to the wild card and getting beat by Atlanta in three games but it was did Sosa homer did McGuire homer did the Cubs win was kind of how 1998 was looked at and I don't know if we'll ever see anything like it again yeah I think that's like I I think they kind of missed out on that last night it seemed like it was more of a McGuire documentary and Sosa was just kind of like a a complimentary piece of that which I didn't really understand because like I mean obviously not really growing up when that was going on but you know hearing tales of it and you know having you know, people that were around tell me about the home run chase. I mean, it was it was McGuire and Sosa. It wasn't McGuire and then Sosa. And so for them to kind of leave that out, it felt like kind of disrespectful to Sosa. Obviously, you know, the, the way and everything ended up with, you know, the steroids coming out and, you know, him kind of being ridiculed by the New York Times, um, you know, ended up having a pretty distasteful end to it. But um, the way they did the documentary of trying to showcase what, what that did for baseball, I think I thought they kind of, you know, screwed over Sosa a little bit. Yeah, it kind of got brushed over. And then what Sosa does afterwards, and he goes up and he has, what, three straight 60 home run seasons from there, from 98 to 2000, then another year. And was it 02 for him? That was ridiculous. I forget exactly what the numbers that went with it, but three straight 60 home run years. It was insane. Um, And he claims that it's all, well, it's just me going to opposite field and learning how to go with the ball instead of pull everything. And that's why the power numbers went up. And I don't doubt that that's true to a small degree, but I mean, let's not kid ourselves here. You look at Sammy Sosa in 1998, you look at a picture of him in a White Sox uniform or a Rangers uniform when he first came in the league. I don't doubt that you add muscle. I don't doubt that you work out hard. Um, No one's working out that hard on their own there, Sammy. Yeah. And especially when he came back, you know, 30 pounds overweight. And he said it was because he had hot, he was eating hot dogs. Right. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, 
being someone like a lot of people my in my generation they kind of look back and they especially with the way steroids has been i mean it's almost been just pushed aside as something that's not like not important like if you do steroids well you did it you know and i still have trouble seeing it that way just because of like i mean we talked about this the other day on our podcast but like what happened with the astros you saw some of the biggest faces of the game being pitted against some of the other biggest face, faces of the game because it was so controversial and it was, you know, it took away some of the integrity of the game. And I think steroids still does that. And I don't want to blame Sosa and McGuire for it, but I mean, they were the faces of, you know, steroids becoming such a big part of baseball. Yeah, they, they certainly were. And what came after that um, in 98, everyone was on board with it. Couldn't get enough of the home run chase. It was the lead story on sports center every night. But by the time Bonds comes back and breaks the record in 2001, everyone kind of knew, well, that's not authentic. That's not just a guy hitting the weights hard. The, the question for me just kind of lies in, where do you draw the line? Where do you draw the line in performance enhancers? Is it back in the late 60s and into the 70s when guys were, were, were greenies were easily accessible? And that helps incredibly with the focus and everything that goes into being a baseball player like does that should that be taken into account should any of the drug problems that baseball had in the late 70s early 80s with the cocaine and any of that I'm not saying performance enhancer but should guys be scrutinized and looked at differently because of that like where do you draw the line I guess is is my question to kind of all of it it's part of the history of the game and whether that's good whether that's bad it's still part of the history and to kind of just try to sweep it away and not acknowledge it in any way shape or form that baseball tends to do like the Cubs try to do without Sammy Sosa being a part of their history. You look on Wrigley field. There's literally one of the, uh, what is it? A captain Morgan club or whatever it's called outside the park. They have their little sections of fans that bought the bricks, just like that's outside the cell. And one of the sections is named Sammy Sosa. Otherwise you see a flag that says Sammy on it for 66 home runs in a year. And there's nothing else that kind of remembers his time as a cub. And 98 was a great year because the Cubs go to the playoffs. 03, obviously the same thing. There was not a reason to watch the Cubs in 99, 2000, 2002, outside of if Sosa was batting and putting one over the fence. And that's exactly what I was just going to ask you. Like, I mean, Sosa helped put the Cubs back on the map. He brought them back to relevance. And, I mean, that's 20 years ago now. I feel like it's beyond due to let him come back. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's – I, the Ricketts family says that they ha he has to apologize. What, what does he have to apologize for? He, they weren't they weren't the ones on that side. Okay, so maybe he ticked some teammates off or he left the last game early in 2004. He claims that Dusty Baker told him to go home. So I, can you fault a guy if the manager says, "I get out of here. Don't have to do. Don't go deal with the press after the game." That's going to ask all about this disappointing finish to a year. I think most athletes that most professional athletes anyway, that wouldn't want to talk to the media anyway, would kind of jump on board and say, yeah, okay. Yeah. I'll get out of here and kind of avoid that. Perfect. Then the Cubs leak the footage of it and make it into this big story of, Oh, Sosa was leaving early. Sosa was leaving early. And it kind of took on a, took on a life of its own. So I, I don't know. I, I, Sammy Sosa's no saints. He's been given every chance and every opportunity to come clean about what he's done. And is it frustrating compared to whether it's Andy Pettit, Mark McGuire, uh, so many other guys that have stepped forward and said, yep, this is what I did. And I wasn't right for it, but this is what I did. And Sosa just denies, denies, denies. 
So it's annoying to see that, but it's also, okay, well, who's really winning this battle if there's just going to be like a, I don't know, it, is, is, it seems like quite the little unnecessary, for lack of a better term, unnecessary pissing match between Sosa and the Cubs. And it's just like somebody swallow some pride here. Yeah, I think that's, you, that's the best way to describe it is the pissing match. Do you think the uh, with the Cubs tweeting that video of Sosa last night, do you think that kind of starts the reunion between them with Sammy coming back? I wonder that. I wonder that, or I wonder if the social media director loses a job over that. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm curious if whoever runs the Cubs social media accounts employed as of Monday morning after that goes out, because they didn't tweet for a while afterwards, and after the show that was on last night, they didn't tweet either. So I, I don't know. I Maybe it's the smallest of small steps to take, but it's a long way to go regardless. Yeah, and it's almost the direct opposite of what the Bulls did when the last dance came out, where even guys that had maybe, you know, had some tenuous relationships with the Bulls as, you know, their careers with the Bulls ended, they still made sure to highlight, you know, the positives of what went on during their run, whereas the Cubs put out that one tweet and it was silence from them. Yeah, it was, I mean, the Bulls thing, they took pride in that because that's the only thing that's gone well for the Bulls. Yeah. Like, <laughs> outside of getting handed a number one pick. But, but yeah, it's, they, they embraced it, and they embraced their past and the Cubs. It's mostly a losing past, but this was a rare, bright moment in their history that they just kind of like to ignore for some reason. Also, one more thing on Long Gone Summer. If you caught that, or you were the, the worker, the employee of the Cardinals that got the 60-second home run, you, are you giving that back to McGuire? Are you selling that for millions of dollars? Because I, I don't know that I'd give it back to him. Oh, my God. When I was 12, I was like, that's the coolest story ever. That guy's such a good guy. Oh, yeah, he's working for $6 an hour, and he catches the ball, and he's called a Mr. McGuire, and he gave him the ball. It's so cool. Myself, living in the economy we're living in right now, I catch that ball, and it is going on every auction block in the country. Oh, not for fast. sure. Are you kidding me? I mean, the guy who got who got number seven, he sold it for almost three million dollars, and that wasn't even a. I mean, obviously that was an accomplishment for hitting the first seventy home runs, but the dude who actually broke the home run record just gave the ball away. Right, right, yeah. It's just like, oh man, you could have could have paid for a nice house, could have paid to not to work until you're sixty or seventy years old if you wanted to with that money, and instead it's well, keep scraping up that infield at Bush Stadium yeah. and. You got to meet Mark McGuire one time. Definitely would not be working grounds crew in St. Louis anymore. That's for sure. Um, but, yeah, we're going to switch switch past here a little bit from the long gone summer. Um, obviously, the state of baseball is um, – it's bleak, to, to put it kindly. Um, we've seen Manfred not have the nuts to say anything or uh, to stand up to the owners or, in opposition, stand up for the players. Um, it sounds like he's probably going to mandate the 50-game season. I don't know what the prorated salaries are going to look like. Um, I mean, I guess I ask you, like, what what happens here? Well, it's it seems like that's what it's headed to, 48 or 50-game season, and they'll get their full prorated salaries for that. But it's – I mean, you're playing a third of a year. So, what, Mike Trout goes from making 36 or so that he's making. He's making $12 million this year. I, mean, I don't think Mike Trout's necessarily hurting, but now compare that to the guys that are scraping by to get into the big leagues that are making league minimum around five hundred, five hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, and that turns into. I mean, I, I know that no one's going to want to hear someone making half a million dollars a year cry poor, but 
these guys only have a certain amount of window, a certain window that they're able to, whether it's a pitcher, that their arm's going to go before it gives out, before they don't, they're not as good as they were. They have a certain window to capitalize on being big league players. And I mean, that's the ones that I feel bad for, the ones that are scratching their way onto a 40-man roster, or hanging onto a roster spot by a thread and not making a ton of money. Maybe they haven't signed their first first uh, contract extension or first time hitting free agency yet. Those are the ones that I especially feel bad for because that's, that's who it affects the most. But I, you kind of look at it and you see, all right, well, the owners, the owners and Rob Manfred's side came out and they agreed at the start of the year, all right, well, this is what we're going to give you. And there was talk back then. There was talk as soon as coronavirus became a thing in the United States. There was plenty of talk of, well, we're start. There was this idea that was out there. So now the owners are acting like, oh, we didn't know there weren't going to be fans. Yeah. Turn on the news once and you would have <laughs> like, thrown in your face. Like, have a clue there. Like, I, if I put blame on anyone, I mean, I'm mostly like 90% on the owner slash Manfred, maybe a little bit on the players, just of the, okay, well, if you want to throw the argument out there that the rest of the world, you're seeing people taking pay cuts and taking, taking voluntary pay cuts or furloughs or whatever it might be, then, okay, then you can apply that to baseball and say, all right, 10% of your salary or whatever it might be, you're not going to be entitled to, but I, to, to think that, I don't know that it goes all the way down to less than a third is absurd to me. And it's, it's embarrassing for the game that it got to this. Yeah. I think, the, I think one of the biggest things that, especially with that last proposal where the players said, we're not even going to rebuttal um, is when they, obviously no one's talking about getting a, their full guaranteed salary, just talking about prorated, but in terms of percentage of a full salary, that percentage went from 36.2 to 36.6. So I mean, I don't, that doesn't even move the needle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's next to nothing. Okay, well, big win there, 0.4%. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think, uh, I, I think that hopefully with 50 games, uh, we can at least enjoy some baseball. I, I mean, I think that's what the players have kind of stated too. Like, you know, at this point, we're not going to get anything that we're even like trying to get. So I guess we'll just – have to go play the game we love which is uh, I mean you do like to hear that from the players that they're going to play the game they love it's just it's it's upsetting that the people up top couldn't even think about you know to t- making an exception for a year that has had so many you know incredible scenarios yeah I and mean, it's just kind of like baseball to me is the ultimate sport of sample size that okay, it might be tedious and it might get, might wear on not the biggest of baseball fans that the season's 162 games long. You can't tell me the teams at the end of the year, the teams that are in the postseason aren't the most deserving in all of sports, the way that it kind of sets up. Now you throw it into a 50 game third of the season type of sprint. And okay, it's cool because anyone can play well for a month or two and go on a hot streak and be in position to make the postseason but you're also not determining who actually the best teams are, I don't think, in that case. And it's just one of those years that it'll be nice to have it back whenever it actually comes back. But I don't know what kind of grand takeaways we're really going to be able to take at the end of this thing because, I mean, this, just look at it based off of how you look at the All-Star game a lot of the time. You see some players that end up making an All-Star team. You're like, wow, God, he was tearing the cover off the ball the first half of the year. And then by mid-August or September, you're like, 
holy shit, he was an all-star? What the hell? <laughs> yep. Like, and that's – you're not even getting to the all-star break by playing just 50 games at this point. So, it's just it, – it's one of those of it'll be interesting, it'll be different. I won't say I'm not going to watch it because, no, I'm way too big of a baseball fan not to, but it's going to be hard to take a whole heck of a lot from it. Yeah, and I guess that's that's what we'll end off is we ask all of our guests, um, you know, in a 50-game scenario, like you were just talking about, so many things can happen um, that, that probably shouldn't. Like, I mean, last year the Giants were 31-19, and 19, the Nationals were 19-31. and 31. Something simple like that where we see, you know, the variation of what could happen because of the season so short. If you had to make one crazy bold prediction um, in a scenario that – you know, would shock everybody um, because it's only a 50-game season. What is your craziest take, craziest bold prediction um, that we could see in a 50-game season? I think you would see teams operate their pitching staffs more like you do in the postseason than you do traditionally during the regular season. And that being, all right, maybe ace pitcher, we'll just take the Sox, for example. Maybe Lucas Giolito's only going to go six innings today or five, not even six innings. Maybe Lucas Giolito's only going to go four or five innings today, but he's going to be available to make extra starts throughout the year. I, mean, I don't know if the Sox have the confidence in their bullpen that they'd be the perfect example of doing this, but teams with, I think you're going to see more bullpenning in regular season than you kind of see now. And not, not to say that it hasn't already gone in that direction, but I think this gives teams a chance of, all right, really don't wear out team if you're playing 48 or 50 games to only have your ace out on the mound nine times a year like is that your best way to win in this kind of season I get it over the long haul of 162 but the way they use pitchers on a in, in limiting maybe either pitch counts or inning counts but using them more than just every fifth day yeah I like that I think that that would make actually a lot of sense especially for teams that have deeper bullpens that um, and it's like, I think that, yeah, those teams with deeper bullpens, uh, we could really see that be a, uh, a mode of operation for them. But uh, we want to thank you so much, Shep, for coming on and, uh, you know, having, taking this time to interview with us. Uh, always great to have a fellow Kohler on the podcast. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we'd love to have you back another time. Uh, hopefully when baseball season is actually, you know, happening, it would be fantastic. And we could talk about White Sox, Cubs, and you name it, uh, instead of having to talk about things that happened 20 years ago. But yeah, uh, thank right. you thank you again for coming on, and uh, yeah, love to have you back. Anytime, guys. Thanks for the invite. I had fun. No yeah, problem. Uh, no worries at all. Anytime. All right. See you later, Shop. Thank you. Right, You're welcome. Take care. You too. See ya. That was our interview with Nick Shepkowski. Uh, now we take you to our next interview with Josh Nelson. Hey, Josh, how you doing? I am doing well. How are you guys? Good. Glad to have you We're on. Real good. Real good. Um, yeah, so before we get started with you, we'd like to introduce to you or to our listeners who you are. So today we have on Josh Nelson. He is the host of the Sox Machine podcast. He's also a member of the Internet Baseball Writers Association and 
the National College Baseball Writers Association, and also a close friend of one of our previous guests, James Fox. Thanks, guys, for having me on. Greatly appreciated. Yeah, no problem. We're excited to have you on and uh, you know talk some baseball and uh, try to try to stay on the positive th- sides of the way things are going right now. But uh, <laughs> we'll do our best. So uh, I guess we'll I guess we'll start on that part. Um, state of baseball, obviously. Uh, a lot of negative things to look at uh, with, you know, the state of affairs right now. Um, it's looking like we're probably going to get a 50-game season mandated by Commissioner Rob Manfred after the owners and players could not come to an agreement. Um, we also saw that you had a really cool interview uh, with Evan Marshall, which I believe you did yesterday. You released it yesterday, or was that today you just released it? Uh, we released it this morning, but, yeah, I, I got a chance to talk to him on Sunday. Yeah, that was awesome. So if you want, you could talk about that for a little bit if you want. Yeah, so I reached out to Evan Marshall because I think right now with all of the dialogue that's happening publicly, it's a lot of it is coming from the national baseball writers, which when Ken Rosenthal and Jeff Paston and John Heyman, when they write about what the, the news and the events and the happenings of baseball – I highly recommend all baseball fans to read their work because they have incredible sources and they do a very good job of investigating and try to get to the source of the truth. But right now we have two parties in baseball owners and players that are not speaking to one another. And instead of just constantly hearing the whispers and the leaks to the media from the national writers, I thought it would be important that we reached out to an actual player and get their perspective on what's happening. And Evan Marshall is a relief pitcher. He's not a baseball star. He just got to the first level of arbitration. And at 30 years old, he was finally going to make more than a million dollars this year. He was scheduled to make $1.1 million. And he has gone through a lot of adversity to get to this point in his career. And I thought, he would be perfect because he's part of this 65% that gets brought up all the time that of players that don't make a million dollars a year, right? Cause the owners are trying to split the union. And when you hear Evan Marshall say that the union has been, has never been as unified as it is today. And that the players, all players are 100% in support of their stance I think that's really key and that's terrible news for the owners because it's not about just negotiating on how to get back on the playing field in 2020. The CBA expires after 2021. And if the fight is difficult now, it's just going to continue to be more difficult next year. And after that conversation with Evan and getting his unique perspective the perspective of a major leaguer and how this is impacting him. I don't think this is just an issue for 2020 anymore. I do agree with Evan that this is going to carry over to talks for the CBA, which means that this is going to be a problem for 2021 and may also be a problem impacting 2022. Because what I'm assuming is that they'll play out the 2021 season and then they'll negotiate the CBA And if the talks are at an impasse and both parties are not willing to work well together, 
we could even see a delay of the 2022 season starting. And it all pretty much stems from the fact that right now in 2020, at this present day, the Players Association has just decided that talks with the owners are futile and they are leaving it up to the commissioner of baseball to make a decision that he really doesn't want to make. Yeah, and I think we've been talking about that a little bit too. I mean, this has such a bigger impact than just this season, especially with the CBA ending after next season. If, if the relationships are so tense and, you know, they're so futile between the players and the owners, it's really hard to see them just all of a sudden making that work for a new CBA. And that's why it's so scary right now. But your interview with Evan Marshall was so good at highlighting, like, why this is more important than just right now. And the worst news, uh, news that isn't direct to Major League Baseball, but I'm sure Rob Manfred doesn't want to come up with an answer right now. Yep, the Ezekiel Elliott news. Exactly. What's going on with the Houston Texans and the Dallas Cowboys and even the University of Houston as well, having six students uh, be tested positive for coronavirus after participating in voluntary workouts. Uh, and the increase in cases in Texas, Florida, and Arizona, which was part of your first plan, or your first plans, I should say, for Major yeah. League Baseball to, to return. And now you got there, – there's more problems. I mean, that impacts five of your Major League Baseball teams directly. And I'm sure the teams in those divisions aren't exactly feeling confident that they want their players to be traveling uh, to those states and to those metro areas so this, this was always going to be a very difficult situation for Major League Baseball. And what the most difficult hurdle for them should have been was the coronavirus. But instead, the owners, crying poor, have decided to make the financial situation the biggest hurdle for both parties to try to clear. And it's a hurdle that the Players Association, they're done. They are done bending over backwards to have baseball games played for the owners, a group of people who really do not want to share as far as in the profits. And some teams have just straight up decided not to spend money anymore in free agency. The Players Association has noticed that. And this is where the Players Association has taken a stand, that if you're not going to honor our agreement in March, then you're just going to have to press the emergency button We'll play 50 games. We'll show up for the 2021 season, but do not expect rosy conversations and negotiations about the new collective bargain agreement once it expires after the 2021 season. Yeah, and I'm guessing you saw this too, and I think this, this just added to the pissing match right now that is you know, the relationship between the owners and the players when, when Bill DeWitt of the Cardinals said that baseball isn't profitable. Yeah. I, I mean, that, that was asinine. I have to imagine the St. Louis Cardinals with their rabid fan base and the best baseball fans in the league. And not to mention one of the most marketable logos around all of Major League Baseball. Right. I, I have a hard time believing that. Like, it, it, Bill, if you're listening to this and if you truly <laughs> believe that's what you – that that – the St. Louis Cardinals are not profitable. You're a terrible businessman, okay? Minor league baseball teams 
make a profit. Okay. If you can't turn out a profit with the major league baseball team, you should sell because you're terrible at business. Like that's why nobody should be believing the owners. And it's the same thing with the Ricketts family in Chicago for the Chicago Cubs, which is also very interesting. Why is the St. Louis Cardinals suddenly backing the Chicago Cubs owners? Like, yeah. don't they hate each other? Aren't they rivals? You haven't heard Jerry Reinsdorf come out publicly supporting the Ricketts family. Uh, so that, that's another part that I found really interesting. But again, the owners trying to appeal to the fans saying that we're not that profitable. And I don't think anyone believes them. Yeah, Ricketts is probably just trying to stick up for Theo, Theo after all that uh, unnecessary money he's been spending over the last three or four years. Well, there is drama to that. So <laughs> this is the drama coming out of Chicago. Uh, in 2015, the rumor is, is that the Ricketts family borrowed a lot of money from banks to completely revamp yep. uh, what is Wrigleyville. And they bought out all the houses and properties surrounding Wrigley. They built the new hotel. They built restaurant fronts. And there's this fancy bowling alley, too, by the stadium. They've done a lot. It looks nicer around Wrigley Field than it did when the Ricketts family bought it um, prior to the 2015 season. And they need the money, it sounds like. They borrowed a lot of money to do all <laughs> yes, this rehab. And I don't. Like, if they don't play the 2020 season, yeah, the Ricketts family is in trouble financially because of they owe a lot of money back for all this rehab work that they did, uh, which, you know, good for them. I, I think it's like an estimate billion dollars of investments that they put into uh, the area. And uh, I guess if you want to feel sorry for billionaires that their billion-dollar investment on their corner of Chicago – uh, is currently empty right now because of the coronavirus. I guess you can shed a tear for them. Um, but it's that that's their business decision. That, that decision had nothing to do with what's on the field. And I don't understand why the Players Association has to take a pay cut for terrible off-the-field business, business decisions owners are making that are loosely tied to the teams that they own. Yeah, and for for us, you know, the guy, me and Kenny, two broke college baseball players who, uh, you know, actually like we play the sport, so we already side with the players. Plus the fact that Ricketts, uh, owner of the Cubs, is the one complaining. That's about as little sympathy as we are ever going to have for anybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that's kind of where we're at right now as far as the standoff between the owners and the Players Association. And I'm with you guys as well. I'm siding with the players on this because, you know, the Major League Baseball the last few years, have made have, they've been making record revenues. Like cash has been flowing into the league. And there's a part of me that can believe that the league and the teams are terrible with money and they either don't save it for a rainy day or they use it for X, Y, Z reasons on other stuff, or they just stuff their pockets. Uh, and if the business fails, that's fine. I got, I built my own uh, golden parachute to save me. Um, but yeah, this is really bad. And this is a terrible look for baseball. And quite frankly, I think Rob Manfred in a lot of ways, he does a terrible job representing the owners. Then he just makes things worse, which is the, 
number one goal for any ownership group appointing to the commissioner. Don't make us look worse than we do. And you know, the, the craziest part about this entire scenario is one that we've kind of forgotten about, you know, why we, why this happened in the first place is because of COVID. Um, but secondly, if any of the four major sports were to theoretically be in the best shape to have host their sport while there's a virus going on, it would be the sport of baseball. You have the most space between all players. There's, there's almost no contact. You can separate – I mean, you don't have to put them in the dugout, especially with no fans. You can separate them in the stands. You would think that baseball should have been one of the easiest sports to get back going quickly, and it's been the exact opposite. And, and you're right on that. And I, the whole fans of the stands, I think Major League Baseball was also prepared to relax on that. And from what I understand, that is not a unanimous approval from the owners. That not all owners think that fans should be in the stands. Uh, I think you're getting a lot of pressure, especially from the Texas teams, the Rangers, because they just built a new stadium, uh, and the Astros. The Astros have a terrible television deal, maybe the worst in baseball, and their media contracts uh, is not enough money to pay the team payroll. So without fans in the stands, yeah, the Houston Astros are going to run a huge negative uh, for the 2020 season. I think financially they are the most worst off team in this situation right now in Major League Baseball, which, you know, karma, that's what you get for cheating. Um, So I don't think too many people are going to be – you know, worried as far as the Houston Astros sake moving forward. Yeah. I miss when baseball social media was just ripping on Houston. No, those were good times. They'll come back. Uh, <laughs> but you know, for the other sports leagues, like here in Chicago, Chicago has been far stricter on the way that they have been handling the coronavirus as far as requiring masks, having restaurants and bars, mostly closed. They're just starting to open up patios they still refuse to open up the largest parks in the city. Uh, and because of that, they, the city and the state of Illinois are one of the few states in this country that's starting to see the decline that we were all hoping for. And now you have the National Hockey League taking notice. And it sounds like from everyone that I'm speaking to in Chicago, especially when it comes to major events, that hockey is coming to Chicago. Yeah, it like sounds like Chicago could definitely be a host city. Right. And, you know, good for the city. You know, they're going to have 24 hockey teams uh, to take up as far as the hotels. But it, it required the city to be incredibly strict on the way that they handled as far as the coronavirus. We cannot say the same for Texas, Florida, and Arizona. And when Definitely it comes to not Florida. Florida. <laughs> well, and when it comes to Florida, I mean, with the NBA, are you sure now that you want everyone in Disney? Because I get it, Disney's a bubble with all the resorts, and they can separate themselves from the outside world. Um, but you don't know where everyone's coming from, and that's a lot of people you got to test before they show up to the resort. And once you're there, you can't leave. Is that a desirable situation for these NBA players where you're quarantined, man? Like you have to live at Disney for the next three months to practice play and then you go directly to your hotel suite. That's all you do for the next three months. 
Some people would say, hey, if I got paid like an NBA player, sure, I'll do that. I can not live with my family and miss my kids for three months while I go play a sport for millions of dollars. Um, but these athletes definitely feel a lot different than the average Joe uh, when it comes to situation. And I, I don't think the NBA situation a couple of weeks ago, we thought was pretty rosy. And we thought that, Hey, the, you know, this league has figured it out, you know, good for them. We're going to get some sports back in our lives. Present day. Uh, now I yeah. question their decision of picking Orlando. Yeah. And you know what, along the lines of what you had just said, we were talking about this. Uh, I think it was last week. Like, and this is just, you know, picking a name, but a guy like John Lester, okay, he's got a family, he's got kids, he's played baseball for a long time, okay, now with the prorated salaries, uh, you know, playing 50 games looking like, so you're, you're, he's making a third of what he was scheduled to make, and plus, he's probably got to go quarantine from his family, you know, for guys who are veterans like that, and who have made their money, doesn't it at some point, like, maybe I call it quits, or not, just don't play this year. You know, Evan Marshall brought that up, and that got a lot of fan pushback, not understanding, well, what do you mean that they wouldn't go play? I would boo them. I would think of them differently. And it's like, guys, is 30% of your paycheck enough to get you out of bed? And leave your family. In some cases. It's not. (laughs) Yeah. Um, it's 30% of my pay is not, not worth just upheaving my entire daily life. It's, and I'm you know, John Lester's a great example because he's been in the league for a long time. He's got his world series rings. He's accomplished everything that you possibly can as a player. I think with the exception of winning a Cy Young award. Um, but at this stage of his career, I mean, yeah, he's earned a lot of money. He's got to take in consideration of how long can I stay away from my family and how long Mm -hmm. can I stay away from my kids? And if I don't want to do that, and if I come back, I could put them at risk. I don't want to put them at risk. And, you know, for a lot of baseball players, family is number one for them. Uh, You know, the money helps, but the money is there to help take care of their families. And if you're going to put them at that position of putting their family at risk to, to try to make 30% of their pay this year, yeah, I could see some player society. You know what? I'm going to sit out 2020. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're, going to, we're going to switch course a little bit here. Um, we know I, I was kind of you know, scrolling through your Twitter, and uh, I saw that you're an MLB The Show guy. Big road to the show fan. Yeah. Uh, you still you still ripping the uh the road to the show? Yeah, I'm currently with the Miami Marlins. Oh, I'm that's in, where, that's uh, where I'm at too. How about that? Yeah, I, yeah. I feel your pain. I'm in Baltimore right now in year three, Ooh. and I don't think we've won more than 70 games in a year. So Okay. So my guy, I did terribly in the uh the showcase. I got drafted in the sixteenth round. Oof. And uh I got I got drafted by the Detroit Tigers. And I was with the Tigers, and I had a decent – my rookie season, I, my guy tore his ACL. So, he had a missed year. <laughs> That's a tough start. Uh, and then I was having a good first half, and then I got traded to Seattle. Man. And my guy – I played with Seattle for like a year and a half, 
And then I demanded a trade because Seattle wasn't going anywhere. Yeah. And then I got traded to Kansas City. Man, and, they are killing you. And in that offseason, I just picked all the Maverick answers. Like, no, I do not want to play here. And in like two weeks in that same offseason, they traded me to Miami. And uh, I've just decided to stick with Miami because evidently in like 2024 through 2027, the Miami Marlins are going to be really good. Uh, I got a chance to play in the World Series, but the Marlins lost. Uh, yeah, the Boston Red Sox beat the, beat the Marlins in that year. And uh, I finished second MVP voting to Yoan Makata, who uh, somehow like – who somehow is going to be playing for the Cincinnati Reds. Oh, no, I don't like that as much anymore. <laughs> yeah. So in, uh, in my road to the show, Yoan Makata and Fernando Tatis Jr. are on the Cincinnati Reds. Man. And Luis Robert is with the Milwaukee Brewers. And Aloy Jimenez is with the New York Mets. So White Sox better the, got some hauls. The White Sox went through another rebuild <laughs> in my uh, road to the show, and they traded everyone away. Yeah, they better have, like, the best farm system in baseball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. After be. those deals. <laughs> Ridiculous. Yeah, but. I'm in my uh, I'm in my second or third year. I'm with Miami. I'm a, I'm a closer. Oh, okay. So we're, we're working on that, Try, trying to get the velo up a little bit. Need some late-inning uh, – yeah, I'm a I'm a right fielder. See the the thing is when I play and will be the show, and even when I play online, I think the Diamond Dynasty, I I have to do a better job of like oh you guys. Whenever I play baseball games, I'm not oh, I hate it. game I to hate walk. It. And I feel like that's the secret sauce in order to be good at and and will be the show. Like you got to get your guy in a 2-0 or 3-1 situation, and that's when the stats come into your favor or the perks uh, light up for your guy, and that's where you get the optimal results. But it requires you to be so patient to get into those uh, pitch counts, which is, is uh, kind of like reality in, in all seriousness. You know, the, on average, the league hitters do far better, and they put up amazing results when they have a 3-1 or 2-0 count. It's rare when they get in those situations, but they do take advantage of those situations. And, uh, yeah, my guy has a problem of never getting to that situation. Yeah. So. I actually have almost the exact same problem as a pitcher because I, I struggle to, like, work around the zone. I want to just attack people. And so I, get, I don't walk a lot of guys – but my whip goes up because my hits per nine is, is through the roof. Got it. So we got, we got to <sighs> fix that, but uh, yeah, I feel, I feel like I'm about the same way with my guy too, but I, uh, I don't like walking guys. I'll attack with three, with two fastballs and then throw a slider. And I mean, feels like I hang the slider 95% of the time. So <laughs> yeah, that seems to always be the way it goes. I, I hate throwing this. I have a love-hate relationship with the slider. The slider is my favorite pitch, but let's say if I'm playing as the White Sox and it's Lucas Giolito, and I just hate throwing that pitch with Lucas Giolito because every time that I do, I have to hold my breath, and if it's anywhere near the middle of the zone, it's going to go 400 feet somewhere. Oh, absolutely. We might actually – Kenny, we might have to get uh... – See if Josh is ever uh, having has enough free time to join our challenge. Yeah, we uh, 
we have this challenge that we do. We kind of started this up last year, and it's kind of been something to just kind of waste time for us when we're not very busy. Uh, but what we do is we start a franchise with every team, and um, you you see who can – you try to win the World Series, obviously, as fast as possible. Um, mm-hmm. And then you average it out among the 30 teams who had the best – uh, who had the best average of when you won a World Series. And then there's some perks to it, like if you win back-to-back, you can take a year off uh, of when you actually won the World Series. If you win three in a row, you can eliminate one of your, like, longest uh, longest dynasties. So that's actually a pretty fun little thing that we do. Huh, that's interesting. I never thought of doing that. So if you do this, when is the next time Detroit – wins the world series i struggled with detroit big time yeah and i um, actually dominated with detroit in this this uh in this year's show i think i got them in 2021 oh wow yeah it's yeah. it's all it's all philosophy for that like you have eventually i had to end up going in like flipping matt manning and uh and casey mize and a lot of those guys and then you had to figure out ways to get rid of like Jordan Zimmerman and Miguel Cabrera off your payroll. But, uh, but though those were tough. Actually, Kansas City was way easier than Detroit was. Yeah, Kansas City, I, I feel, has better talent right now in the farm system. Obviously, that changes, though, with this recent draft. I thought the Detroit Tigers had a really strong draft. Yeah. And then that, that was an area that they were really lacking. Like, on the position player front, all they really had was Riley Green. Yep. And, and now at having the draft class that they did and, and adding all this position player talent, I think will, will really help out as far as their rebuild. What would be Baltimore? Baltimore would be a very yep. long time. That was a tough one, too, because not only was their farm system, you know, very, like pretty much short pickings for uh, some pickings for, for Baltimore, but there's some big contracts that you're going to have to deal with there, too. You have Chris Davis. Um, you have Alex Cobb. Uh, I think there's another star that has a bigger contract too. But you know, you had some contracts that you had to you had to deal with. Plus, trying to figure out ways to build up your farm system so you could use that farm system to acquire better talent. I think Baltimore took me three or four years. Wow. Okay. That's impressive. That's impressive. Seattle. Seattle. I never won with Seattle. Yeah, I have not. I have not won with Seattle. Neither we one of us it, won with Seattle. We cap it once you get to what twenty twenty six. Yep. If you get to twenty twenty six, you automatically take a twenty thirty for that team. So both of us couldn't get there. It, it, Seattle's tough. Yeah, Seattle was. And I thought I had a good team with Seattle. It just didn't work out. Did you make the postseason? I did make the. Po- I actually made the World Series back to back years. I just couldn't win it. Oh wow. Oh, yeah, that was that was a real heartbreaker for me. I'm not gonna lie. Oh man, yeah, they haven't been to the playoffs since 2001. My yeah. gosh, that's a, that's such a long time. I feel bad for Seattle Mariner fans sometimes because that's such a that's such a long long drought. Yeah, that's I almost think... being as bad as a Cleveland Browns fan at this point. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Seattle oh, Mariners man. and the Cleveland Browns are very similar. Who was the Browns quarterback when they last made the playoffs? Oh, geez. Was it Tim Couch? I was going to say, did they make it when Tim Couch was the quarterback? Yeah, that's probably who was their quarterback. I wonder. Great trivia question for the podcast listen. <laughs> yeah, it's a really good one. 
look it up. Who was the Cleveland Browns quarterback the last time they went to the playoffs? Yeah, that's they uh, I mean, no, they have like one of the longest droughts in pl- in sports history. <laughs> not, not good. I mean, they're trying. Bless them. They are, they are definitely trying, but. They just, I don't know if it's just bad luck or incompetence, but uh, <laughs> maybe a little bit of both. Bad ownership. <laughs> it's kind of yeah. like the Chicago Bulls right now, too. You just <laughs> don't know when the Chicago Bulls are going to yep. be, be good again. All right. So the Browns were 10 and 6 in 2007. Did they make the playoffs? Oh my gosh. That's the last time they won more than seven games. Their uh, last the playoff? playoff? Last time they were in the playoffs was 2002. So I'm looking who that quarterback was. Yeah, they didn't. The poor Browns. They win 10 games in 2007. They don't even make the playoffs. Yeah, it was that. Tim Couch and Kelly Holcomb. Yep. So Kelly right. Holcomb. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, they that, only that lost is- by three to Pittsburgh. <laughs> Oh, no, they had the lead. That's right. They were up 24-14 going into the fourth quarter, and Pittsburgh scored 22 points. And that's the last time they've been there. God, I'm looking at this right now with the Cleveland Browns. Their last 10 seasons, they have a winning percentage of 26.6 for a record of 42-117-1. Yeah, that to, if you're a Cleveland Browns fan, I'm sorry for twisting the knife. The Browns are up 33-21 to with four minutes left to go in the fourth quarter. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> the, the, the Steelers scored the game-winning touchdown with 54 seconds left. This really went from uh, MLB The Show talk to why the Cleveland Browns are still bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a 49ers fan, so this last Super Bowl. Oh, so you got you got a nice little <laughs> year then. <laughs> it was painful. Uh, but Patrick Mahomes is awesome. So I can't and you had a nice little Illinois touch there with Garoppolo, the quarterback. Yeah, and he's a White Sox fan. Yeah, you so. really can't you can't beat that. That's a nice little gig. Yeah, it is. It is. Ken, Kenny's so. probably a little upset with you. He's a Packer fan, so. Yeah, oh. it's all right. You guys will have Aaron Rodgers as your starting quarterback oh, in about gosh. two years because <laughs> we're going to cut him for a quarterback named Jordan Love. So I went to UW Oshkosh. Okay, we we go to Concordia, Wisconsin, which is okay. Right by yeah, Milwaukee. yeah. Yep, Concordia would sometimes play Oshkosh in uh, non-conference baseball. Yep. yep. You guys are in the uh, CCIW. We're in the NAC. The NAC. Yeah, we moved okay. to the NAC a couple years ago, about ten years ago, maybe twelve years ago. God, I'm old. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah. When I went to college, yeah, it was the CCIW. Um, with like Elmhurst and Wheaton and Augustana yep. for all those that are in Illinois, uh, all the D3 schools. Um, but yeah, so I, I was in Oshkosh when Brett Favre retired, which obviously very close pr- proximity to Green Bay. And man, I remember people in Appleton and in Oshkosh, they hated Aaron Rodgers hated Aaron Rodgers because they loved Brett Favre so much and it was an end of an era and he was the guy that forced Brett Favre out and now they love him and now it's like deja vu it's literally <laughs> deja vu I mean yeah. it's it's the exact same thing that happened yeah 
So I got a question for you guys. All right. So being college baseball players, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Where are you guys at as far as the season picking up again? Like, are things looking good for 2021? Yeah, um, I actually, yeah, I think I, so. I was talking to our assistant coach the other day, you know, because I've seen some stuff going on on Twitter that some of the D1 schools and D2 schools are actually canceling all fall activities for baseball. Um, but no, I was talking to him and he said, you know, we're all on for the fall. He said, everything's looking good. Um, you know, the NCAA dropped how many games we need to play uh, in order to be tournament eligible this year. So now we only have to play 21 games to be tournament eligible this year, which was down from 34 last year. Right. So, no, they dropped the games. Um, the one thing that might be different this year for us, at least, is our travel. We might not be going on our spring break trips. Um, that's all based on the school, I guess, and what their decisions are. And I guess what COVID does, if it does reappear in the springtime again next year. But it's all loosely based on that right now. Yeah, and as you mentioned, being part of the National College Baseball Writers Association, speaking with some of the other writers about college baseball, it's, it sounds like they have a good game plan that, you know, eliminating the roster caps, expanding the active rosters will help the college programs because you got juniors that are returning to school because they didn't get drafted and you got an incoming freshman class. However, the things that we're talking about, especially when it comes to D1 schools, is what happens if you don't have college football or you can't have fans at your college football games? Then, yeah. then it's the money crunch. Yeah. You know, which schools are suddenly not going to have money for spring sports? I mean, and we've already seen some schools just, you know, delete their programs. Bowling Green got rid of theirs and – um, well, they got that. They got it back. Did they get it back after only after the alumni raised one point five million dollars? Oh, I did see that. Out. That was Oral Hershiser that did that, right? Yeah, he was Oral, part of that. Yeah, okay, I did see um, that. But I'm just thinking, like the SEC schools should be fine, the ACC schools should be fine, but the MAC conference, right? Your yeah. Kent states and your Ball states, or like a Northern Illinois, who we need so much money for. Exactly their football. If you don't have college football, which is the money maker for these college athletic programs, uh, if they have a bad financial year, how does that impact the rest of the athletic department? And. I, I don't think basketball would take a hit because they kind of happen at the same time, right? There's still some college football going on when college basketball starts up in November. Uh, but baseball and softball, man, I, I, I'm a bit worried because uh, if some of these uh, D1 college conferences don't do well in the fall financially, I do think that baseball is not out of the clear yet. Uh, when it comes to some of these major conferences and major schools that they could take some type of hit because financially they just can't support the program like they used to. They just have to probably make some drastic uh, conference or I should say non-conference scheduling uh, to be more focused on regional, which would be kind of cool for you guys because who knows, maybe a D1 school will call up yeah. uh, like Illinois or Northern Illinois and be like, hey, you guys want to play some baseball? And you get a chance to play some D1 baseball. Yeah, and you know the other the other thing that um, I, I think plays a big factor to this is, I mean, where are the schools at? Um, like, if you're in Iowa 
and you're playing baseball at the University of Iowa or Iowa State. Um, I mean, Iowa's very open right now. They've had, like, lowering cases. Um, COVID spike is done. And it sounds like Iowa's going to have attendance at their football games. So if you're in the state of Iowa or you're going to the University of Iowa, you have a better chance of playing in the spring because your school's going to be able to make money because they're allowing attendance. But if you're in a state like Florida where the cases are rising or Arizona or Texas and your schools can't have attendance, you're in more trouble. Yeah, I think programs like UCF, FIU, Florida International University, uh, the smaller Florida schools that have football programs, uh, they could be they could be in trouble. I mean, those schools are not exactly baseball great programs, but they could be in trouble. And mm-hmm. if they're in trouble, it impacts the programs, especially in Florida, like Florida and Florida State and Miami. Uh, you know, they they schedule games against each other all the time, and all of a sudden they don't have those games, and it's like. NCAA, go back to the drawing board. You'll need to lower the amount of games that are required to make the postseason, just like D3 and, and D2. So base, I, I, think, I feel like with college baseball, they're making good headway, but they're not out of the clear yet. And they're really not going to know their entire situation, I feel like, into November, which it, that's not good. Because if they get bad news in November that financially their athletic departments have taken a huge hit because of the lack of attendance for college football games, uh, we could see some drastic changes again in the, the college baseball landscape when they try to pick up and start the 2021 season in February. Yeah, for sure. All right, before we get done with you today, Josh, we always have a question for our guests uh, at the end of the interview. Um, with the possible, or I guess more than possible now, probable 50-game schedule uh, that's probably going to be played and mandated by Rob Manfred, we can see a lot of different things happen. Um, you know, the variation of what, what could occur during a 50-game season is a lot, a lot bigger than a typical 162. In your opinion, if you could give us like a bold prediction or a bold take or something that seems out of the ordinary for a scenario, like a team that does really well, a player that exceeds expectations. What is something crazy that could happen in a 50-game window? Okay, here's my bold take. Illinois is going to have legal sports betting. The casinos are going to finally have uh, be, accept, be able to accept bets at their casinos. Okay. I'm going to go to one of those casinos, and I am going to put a – wager on the tampa bay rays winning the world series in 2020 yes oh my gosh that's exactly what kenny did i not say this on one of our earlier podcasts yeah we talked about this i uh, said I the rays could win the world the, series i think yes. when we broke down the al east you said if there's a season of 50 to 70 games that the tampa bay rays are going to win the world series I, i'm so with that team they're so deep their pitching staff is mm-hmm. i mean their pitching staff is legitimate one and they've through. been through the craziness. Yes. They, th- this team and their pitching staff has bought into the opener. And yes. this is exactly what you, as every team, is going to need to do because I don't think three weeks of spring training is going to be enough for the starting pitchers to be ramped up and be ready to go. And who knows, there could be injuries because you started up and sure you're working out at home, but I'm sure it's not the same intensity that you were working out when you were with your teammates at spring training. Uh, And you're probably throwing to your wives that are 
wearing catcher's gear uh, or you're throwing it to the side of a building, uh, you know, it's not the same. And I think with Tampa, you mentioned the depth, they got tremendous depth and they've gone through this type of situation with the opener and the pitching staff, they don't complain. They bought into it and they're used to it. And they are a little bit on the younger side with their roster and they have the number one prospect in Wander Franco. And if they decide to unleash Wander Franco and he is a much needed spark plug for them, I do think that the Rays have an excellent chance of just winning the American League East over the New York Yankees and doing exceptionally well in the postseason to the, to the point that I, I would put money on the Tampa Bay Rays winning the World Series. And, and you it know, would be you know really good you odds missed? right now. But I, I hope people don't take that advice so I get better odds and uh, make more money if they actually do it. You know, a name that you missed there, too, offensively, that I think is one of the biggest, like, under-the-radar guys this year. Kenny, what's his name? Yoshi Tomo Tosugo. You uh, know Tosugo. it. He is going to – I'm convinced he's going to be unbelievable this year. I mean, that, that deal, though, that Tampa Bay made with Pittsburgh and now Chris Archer <laughs> yeah. has that – serious injury now yeah and guys pitchers have just not bounced back um from that type of surgery they just haven't they man they raided pittsburgh i mean austin meadows and tyler glass now i think are going to be part of this great team that tampa bay has and it you know for the white Sox and white Sox fans they think that all right the white Sox are here this is their time to shine and while I think the White Sox would be good, and I think they could win some divisional titles, the Yankees are back to spending money. And the Tampa Bay Rays have the best farm system in all of Major League Baseball, right there with the San Diego Padres. I don't see these two teams going away. And the fact that Heim Bloom went from Tampa to Boston, so you're taking the thinking of Tampa, and now you're infusing it with money. We saw this when Andrew Friedman went from Tampa to the Los Angeles Dodgers and look at the Dodgers today, they are a, just this powerhouse, this, this wrecking machine in the national league. I mean, the Dodgers have ended the Chicago Cubs contention window, even though nobody in Chicago wants to admit that Los Angeles has preempted that Uh, there in the American league East is going to be insane. And I didn't even mention the young talent that the Toronto blue Jays have (laughs) that that's coming through in the farm system. But I believe in the Tampa Bay Rays and in a crazy, wacky 50-game season, we can get something stupid for a World Series matchup. It would be fun, in my opinion. But you could have something like the Tampa Bay Rays against the Milwaukee Brewers, and everybody would be like, who wants to watch that World Series? Well, I do, because I think there's a lot of interesting storylines and angles to a matchup like that in the World Series between the Brewers and Rays. But I think that's what everyone should be expecting is just complete random. And if it is going to be complete random and chaos, I don't think there's a better team prepared for that in Major League Baseball right now than the Tampa Bay Rays. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And you just made a lot of our Brewers listeners very, very, very happy. <laughs> <laughs> I like that Brewers team. They also do well in chaotic situations. I mean, they almost went into the World Series after having no starting pitching. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Uh, that that year that we were, what was that, 2018? Yeah, I mean, we were carried by Brandon Woodruff. Yeah, the no starting pitching and the fact yeah. that they made it that far, and uh, 
Yeah, Craig Council did a great job managing that Brewers team. And, you know, if Josh Hader doesn't have a bad inning, we're not talking about the Washington Nationals as the 2019 World Series champions. Very true. They and no team is no team is better than at picking up White Sox cast-offs in the Milwaukee Brewers either. <laughs> there's something there. I don't, I don't know, know what, what it is. is. Yep. Right. But there's some type of relationship that that's between the Brewers and White Sox front offices that – those two teams feel very comfortable making deals with one another. They must have internal spies in the scouting departments or something because they, they love each other. They're open books, man. Maybe yeah. David Stearns and Rick Hahn are, are besties. Who yeah. knows? Someone Maybe. should investigate that. They should. But for, uh, for that, we, uh, that's all the time we have. Thank you so much, Josh. This was fantastic. Uh, we had a great time interviewing you. We would absolutely love to have you back again. That was so fun. Um, yeah, I mean – can't thank you enough for coming on and uh, you know, have a great week and hopefully we can uh, see a deal like in place and we have baseball here pretty soon. Yeah, absolutely. I do hope that baseball returns because it'd be great to have that back in our lives, but for everyone listening, stay safe out there. Please wear a mask in public. Let's not be dumb. Uh, let's get this over with. So we don't have to worry about this yep. uh, during the fall. Yep, and hey, good luck winning another MVP and maybe get a World Series <laughs> out there in Miami. That'd be fantastic for us. I'll screenshot it and I'll tag you guys. Perfect. That's oh, exactly perfect. what we want. <laughs> All right, thank you, Josh. Have a great day. No yeah, problem. Thanks, thank Josh. you, guys. All right, guys, that was our interview with Josh Nelson. And that was sponsored by Anchor. Uh, we had a great time interviewing Josh. We'd love to have him back. That was, that was really fun. Um, just just a bunch of some dudes chatting. That's what, that's what it felt like. So really good time with Josh. But uh, next we're going to move on to our start bench cut segment. Uh, I came up with the list for this week. Uh, three guys who all have some pretty similar uh, statistics and uh, they're at pretty similar points in their career as well. Um, so I'll lead it off. It is Mike Fultonevich. Jose Brios and John Gray, uh, who are the three guys for the start bench cut this week. And I'm going to begin with the cut, which is easier than I thought it was going to be. Um, and that's Mike Fultonevich. Um, his, um, his underlying statistics just uh, weren't comparable to either Gray or Brios. Um, less strikeouts, um, more walks than Brios, just, just a hair less walks than gray. Um, yeah, it just, his ERA was higher. His FIP was higher. Um, hard hit rate was higher. So for me, it was just tough to, to have him over either of those two. So I decided to cut him. Um, then I decided. Yeah. That for my for my start, I guess I'll go. To, uh, I cut the first guy, so we'll go to start now. Weird, weird strategy, but uh, I'm gonna go with my start as Jose Barrios, which seems pretty obvious. Um, but statistically, it's a little closer than you would think. So if you're comparing them, Barrios has the lower walk rate and the higher strikeout to walk ratio, but Gray does have more strikeouts per nine. Uh, Barrios has the lowest ERA and the lowest FIP. However, John Gray has the lowest expected FIP because he has a higher Babbitt. So his FIP really should be lower. Just his, the, his opponent's Babbitt is high. Um, Brios has a lower whip. He has 20% 20, 20 soft contact rate. 
and a sub 40% hard hit rate. But Gray has a higher ground ball rate, and he leaves the most men on base. So they are actually very similar. It's just that Barrio seems to have more of those things going in his direction than Gray does. Uh, he's also provided 10 more over the last three years, and I think John Gray is right around eight. Um, but, no, they're very close, and they're a lot closer than I thought they were going to be. Um, but I, I did decide to go with Barrios as my start, and John Gray is my bench. Yeah, and you know what? Our list is going to be identical again. Yeah, um, I kind of so, you know, the one, thing, the one thing with Fulte is, you know, if you have a top-year rotation guy that's producing a .8 war in a year, um, last, like he did last year, you know, I'd like to see that a little higher. Uh, the one really uh, thing that was tough about Fulte, though, is that he doesn't walk a lot of guys. Um, he had a 2.85 base on balls per nine, uh, which was actually the lowest of the group. Uh, so he's not walking a lot of guys. Um, you know, his whip uh, last year sat at a 1.25, which is a little high. Uh, you know, 2018 was his best year, and he had a point or a 1.08 whip. Um, you know, bat hip last year was a 2.65. Um, you know, if he would have produced like he did in uh, 2018, that probably would be my start. Uh, so, obviously, my start is Jose Barrios. And the re I picked him just – I mean, he started some big games already for Minnesota. Um, produced a 4.4 war last year. Um, I mean, the guy has ace mentality, which is part of the reason I – I did pick him as my start. You know, those other two guys don't have that ace mentality yet just because they're overshadowed by younger stars in that rotation, um, you know, which is why John Gray, I mean, Herman Marquez is the ace of that staff in Colorado, and John Gray is probably the number three guy of that staff because Kyle Freeland's, I mean, he's due to bounce back. So, um, yeah, so that's going to be – those are my I've always too. I've always been a big fan of John Gray. I don't know why, but yeah, you know he's a guy that um, you know has had some rocky ups and downs in his career. Um, you know, 2018 was just a terrible year for him, but you know bounced back very nicely in Colorado. But the one thing that you can't look at, like you got to look at what his pitching was when he pitched at home versus. When he was on the road, because you know Colorado's a hitter's ballpark. Yeah. You know his – I mean, his home run numbers were inflated at Colorado, which most pitchers are. It's very hard to be a pitcher with a low home run per nine in Colorado. Yeah, and he is too. So with him a, only yeah. having a – I mean, he had a 1.14 home run per nine, and that's pitching in Colorado. Yes. I mean, half his starts last year. So I wonder what that home run per nine actually – uh, looks like if he's not pitching in Colorado. No, and that's I, I forgot to mention that about John Gray too. But you know he's actually very comparable to Barrios, and he is pitching in one of the worst uh, pitcher-friendly parks in in the league. So um, no, I think that's an interesting point. But that's all we have for our start bench cut segment. Uh, we are going to move on to our most underrated player segment next. And that was our start bench cut segment. Uh, we're now going to move into our most underrated player. Uh, you know, we've been keeping themes to this. Um, so this week we're going to do pitchers. Um, so my pitcher 
um, pitches for the Minnesota Twins. He is a closer, um, you know, and the one thing that you look at or you think of when you think of closers, you think of Josh Hader, you think of Kenley Jensen, you think of Aroldish Chapman, uh, you think of Brad Hand, um, you know, you Roberto think of those bigger Zuna. name guys, but this guy, yeah, Roberto, you know, Ken Giles, like you think of these big name guys, um, but I mean, this guy pitches better than most of these guys um so let's just let's just get into it last uh you know some of this real quick so last year he uh pitched in 60 games through 69 innings had a k percentage of 32.4 and a base on ball percentage of 4.0 with a ground ball percentage of 50.6 so the guy doesn't strike out a ton of guys you know he's not going to strike out guys like Hader and Chapman Ozuna Giles those guys have high strikeout numbers but he doesn't walk guys, which is where those other guys struggle at struggle at times. And the ground ball percentage of fifty point six percent is pretty damn impressive to me. Um, so I, I did Taylor Rogers if you haven't figured it out yet. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. he, had a, he had a FIP of two point eight five and a WAR of two point one last year. So pre, pre, producing a WAR of two point one as a reliever, uh, it's pretty good. Um, you know, the guy's done it now for a couple of years, has produced these numbers. Um, just looking at, um, you know, fan graphs also, as I was looking at his stats produced, uh, they had an article, Taylor Rogers, tremendously underrated is what it was titled. And this <laughs> was uh, written uh, beginning, of, beginning of September last year. So, yeah. So, in his top relievers, based on that, he was the number five reliever last year behind Kirby Yates, Hayter. Chapman, LeClerc, and Trinan. Um, then um, for uh, okay, uh, you know his runs against per nine, he was number two in the league. Um, so I mean, this guy can just pitch. Um, he gets guys out. Um, yeah, I don't know how else to put it except he's one of the top closers in the league and you never hear about him. No, I Taylor Rogers is is a is kind of a beast. You know, a little sinker action from the left side. He's not gonna be your guy that throws four seam fastballs with extremely high RPMs that's coming at your face. You know, he comes in, keeps the ball low in the zone, maybe attacks you high a little bit to change your eye level, but loves to attack you with the sinker and a nice nice hard slider. And he's gross late in the game. Yeah, I mean, if there's a if there's a closer that I'm, uh, you know, thinking I did not want to face at the end of the game, it's probably Taylor Rogers. I mean, the other thing that I saw was his home runs per nine was a point four zero last year. Yeah, and that's huge as a closer to come in and keep the ball in the ballpark. So he doesn't walk guys. He doesn't give up home runs, and his ground ball percentage is fifty percent. Like, I mean, that's extremely tough and for a team that's uh, looking to contend you need a guy at the back end of the bullpen like that that keeps the ball in the ballpark and gives you a chance yeah. to win games the other stat that i was looking at was his left on base percentage last year was an 86.2 again huge as a closer huge as a closer no i i think taylor yeah. rogers is very 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 valuable um how what how many yeah, years does he have left on his contract you know so he has uh, – he's arbitration eligible after this year. 
Um, he's making 4.45 this year. He's a free agent in 2023. So he's got so, a couple years left. He has three years left. That's yeah, pretty three good, though. Left. Pretty good. I mean, yeah, and, um, you know, we're also starting to see relievers get paid more. Um, so Yeah, he might know, get a good payday. He's 29 years old already. He will be hitting free agency at 32, so we're not going to see him get, like, the mammoth long-term deal, but we will see him get a bigger probably I mean, two- or three-year deal we, would be my guess. We still saw guys like Kenley and Araldis get good deals late, later or in their early 30s, so definitely possible for Taylor Rogers, though. Yeah. Um. All right, I'll do mine now. I think just with a guy like Taylor Rod. Oh, no, go on. What do you got to say? What more do you got to say about Taylor no, Rogers? I just, <laughs> no, I just think that, you know, the reason that the reason that Chapman and Jansen did get those deals is their velocity. Yeah. Because if they're – if their stuff doesn't like Taylor Rogers, heavy sinker ball. If that sinker ball starts fading out a little bit, um, you know he doesn't have the velocity to just blow fastballs past guy like a Jansen, like a Hater, like a Chapman, like a Giles, like an Ozuna, Duke girl, you know, close to 100 miles an hour, or if not over 100 miles. Yeah, an hour. we at least kind of saw that with Britain when his sinker started to go away. He started he started to struggle a yeah. little bit, but I think Britain will end up being being back yeah. to what he used to be. But all right. I'm going to yeah. do mine now. Um, he is a starting pitcher in the National League West. I has already told Kenny, he pitches for the Arizona Diamondbacks. Kenny, any preliminary guesses? You know, this is my second favorite team, so I'm just trying to think of underrated guys on that staff. And uh, are we going Robbie Ray? No, not Robbie Ray. All right, I'll give you more hints. No, not Robbie Ray. Um, yeah. He has been a journeyman through the league. Um, he's pitched in. Uh, oh, I got both, it. Both the American League and the National League. He has been a fantastic innings eater. Keeps the ball on the ground very well. I got it. Who we got? Mike Leake. Mike Leake is my most underrated player today. Uh, again, I'm not trying to claim that Mike Leake is some like ace of the staff, or he's going to go out there and you know dominate a Pope. No, that's not only what I'm saying about Mike Leake. What I'm saying about Mike Leake is he's underrated in what he brings to the team in terms of keeping you in ball games, eating a shit pot full of innings, and, you know, I mean, essentially giving you a chance to win games. And that's, that's an underrated thing in today's game, especially with the way we've moved to bullpens being so important and uh, starters going less innings, and we're all about velocity. Sometimes a little change of pace guy who can come in, throw the ball in the low 90s, get keep the ball on the ground, and give you six, seven innings. Um, I mean, almost every start, that's valuable in today's game. And, again, it's not like he's been doing that at, at like, poor value. I mean, he's thrown since – all right, so we'll go back. So, 2019. When he was with, I believe he started the season with Seattle, and then he, he was traded to Arizona midseason. Um, but so he threw 197 innings 2019, 185 and two-thirds 2018, 186 in 2017, 176 in 2016, 192 in 2015, 214 in 2014, uh, 192 in 2013, 179 in 2012, uh, 167 and two-thirds in 2011, and in his rookie year he threw 138 innings. So, um, dude eats innings. 
I mean, he's qualified as a starting pitcher in every single year that he's pitched, besides his rookie year. That's incredible. You don't see guys do that very often with both health and with the the shortened amount of innings that the guys are throwing. He's qualified as a starting pitcher in every year since 2011, which is a, a thing that's that's worth noting. Um, he also has not had an ERA uh, above 4.4, except for one year, which was in 2016 with the Cardinals, which is still when he threw 176 innings and was able to accumulate a 2.5 war. Um, he threw 4.29 last year, 4.36. He's kept his ground ball rate right around 50%. Leaves on base about 70% of the guys that he faces uh, are that get on base. Um, I, I really like Mike Leak for what he actually does. Um, typically, his, uh, his whip is in the low ones. Um, I mean, again, he walks like anywhere from 3 to 5% of guys that he faces compared to a strikeout rate of 15%, which, again, he's not striking out a lot of guys, but he doesn't give a lot of free passes up. So, I mean, last year he had a strikeout strikeout to walk ratio of 4.7, which is very good. So, uh, yeah, no, Mike Leak does a lot uh, with not a lot that he has. He just goes up there and shoves it. You know what else Mike Leak does? What else does Mike Leak do? He's a big shoplifter. Hey, sometimes. Remember that whole thing what that happened? I don't remember that. You remember that whole thing? No. Yeah, that was like, so what? He was drafted in what year? 2010, right? Uh, 2009, I want to say. 2009, eighth overall pick. He was up the next year. Yeah, and they brought him up right away. Yeah, so when he was in uh, Cincinnati uh, that first year, um, no, wait, was that? Was he? Yeah, yeah, he it began, was in Cincinnati. Yeah, yeah. through the first five years with the Reds. Yep. 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 Actually, the so first he, six years. Uh, he was in uh, Macy's in downtown Cincinnati. I remember that because it was like a big deal because I grew up watching Mike Leake play like at ASU, like when he would start everyone like baseball fans are at the game watching Mike Leake pitch. But um, yeah, I remember this was a huge deal. It was all over the news, but like he went into Macy's and was like changing the tags on like t-shirts to lower prices and got busted. Hey, you got to respect that. It was kind of funny. You got to respect that. Like, and then, yeah. And then, uh, you know, he does this big interview for like ASU fans and stuff, but yeah, no, he was, that was just kind of funny to see, like, this guy that just got everything that was pitching the bigs pretty much right after he got drafted. Um, and he's doing community service and is uh, – they had him in, like, an orange jumpsuit and, like, this uh, video of him be. doing community service. But, yeah, no, yeah, he was big shoplifter in his early days. He's the most underrated shoplifter today, too. Yeah. No, but uh, that's, that's what I had for Mike Leak. Uh, I think Mike Leak is – um, very valuable for what he does. Yeah, he's getting paid decent money, making $16 million, but um, having a guy like he's that in your that, rotation. Is he still on that deal that St. Louis signed him on? Um, no, I think they, he's on, They signed him to a big deal, didn't they? Didn't St. Louis sign him to a big deal? Hold on. I'm uh, five years, $80 million. So, yes. 
<laughs> this has been his last year, 16 a year, yeah. Yep. This would be this would be his last year. He has a mutual option for next year. So no, but that's what I have on Mike Leak. Um yep, gives you gives you a decent war every year and you know gives you a chance to win. So all right, guys, that is all we have for the most underrated player segment. And actually, that's all we have for the show. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you guys enjoyed the interviews and some of our segments today. Um, again, we are sponsored by Anchor. Go check out anchor.fm slash start. Um, that is where you can maybe start up your own podcast and, uh, you know, see what you can do. So thank you for tuning in. Um, had a great time, fun show. And uh, we'll see you guys on Sunday. Yep, see y'all. Chalkline Talk, baby.